Well, if a person claims to be a king, they better be able to back it up, right? If you come offering a kingdom, you best have the power to pull it off. You can't be some politician just blowing hot air on the campaign trail, making a bunch of empty promises. We go back to the first century and the nation of Israel. We think about this reality, bringing the kingdom of heaven to an occupied and wayward Israel would require great power and never before seen authority. In Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus has been teaching with great authority. The crowds were overwhelmed by his word. They had never heard anything like it in their lives. But can he back it up with action? As we even said last week, talk is cheap. Action proves things. And so in a very masterful arrangement coming out of Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in the world, the most famous sermon in the Bible, the words of Jesus coming off of that. Now, Matthew is going to present to us the deeds of Jesus that show his authority. We're moving from three chapters of authoritative words to two chapters of authoritative deeds. Chapters 8 and 9 are Matthew's way of giving a resounding yes to the questions that I just posed. Would Jesus have the power to pull this off? And so I want to show you a a few slides here so that you can get a bird's eye view of what's going on in chapters 8 and 9. The the chapter breaks and the verse breaks would kind of hide this from you, but it's very important that we see this. It is a masterful arrangement. And remember that Matthew is not in chronological order. He takes, he takes certain miracles and certain teachings and he arranges them in the order that he wants for the themes that he is carrying forward and the point and the, and the purpose that he has. And, and this is a great example of it. So here's an overview as we begin to turn the corner now from five to seven to eight and nine. Here's an overview of these chapters. Let's go back a slide. You're a little bit ahead of me. There we go. There are three cycles of three authoritative deeds of Jesus. That call us to faithful discipleship. That show us faithful discipleship. So three cycles of three deeds each. Next slide. The first cycle is 22 verses. It's chapters 8, 1 to 17. Where we will see his authority over leprosy, paralysis, and fever. And then 8, 18 to 22, discipleship. Second cycle, 29 verses, and you see their authority over nature, demons, and paralysis, and again, discipleship. Third cycle, authority over death, blindness, and muteness, and again, discipleship. And so that's now the, the big picture of these two chapters as we get into them this morning. All of his words, you see, called for faith and obedience, And now all of his deeds will call for faith and obedience. They work in tandem, you see. They're like a good mother and father. (laughs) Working together, reinforcing one another, backing one another up. The deeds supporting and backing up the words. The words explaining the deeds. They're like a one-two punch that ought to leave us knocked out by his authority and Frankly, surrendered to his sovereignty as his faithful followers. 
We never leave the concept of discipleship as we look at these miracles, as we consider these deeds of Jesus, as we consider the examples of his authority over all things. The underlying theme through all of this is as a disciple, we are to respond in faith and obedience to these authoritative deeds. So today we're going to be on chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, this first cycle where we will see these first three authoritative deeds. And so here's the big idea of the sermon. We find authoritative deeds that show us fundamentals of discipleship. Not yet. (laughs) Authoritative deeds that show us fundamentals of discipleship. And there's your title for the message. My purpose this morning is I want to show you how to follow Jesus using the example of three people who encountered him. See, five to seven was didactic. Five to seven was teaching. Five to seven was doctrine. Now we're going to see real people and from their examples learn fundamentals of discipleship. Fundamentals of following Jesus Christ. You know, you can tell somebody something, but you can also show them something, right? And today is a show you something of a living illustrations of real people who encountered Jesus Christ and his power. Your outline is three fundamentals of discipleship. Each authoritative deed, each miracle story of healing will show us a fundamental of discipleship. So we begin with fundamental number one. Effective prayer happens when total confidence meets complete surrender. Follow along verses one to four. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I call this first fundamental of discipleship this effective prayer happens when total confidence in God meets complete surrender. And you may ask, why am I highlighting prayer here? This is a healing miracle. Yes, it is, but it has all of the elements of prayer. You have a person in need who comes to Jesus, who bows down before him in reverence, recognizing something of his authority and speaks to him. Is that not prayer? Okay, just because Jesus is physically present doesn't mean it can't be prayer. This is exactly what happens in prayer. We come with our filth, our shame, our brokenness, our our sin, and the consequences of our sin. We come to Jesus, we bow down before Him, and we make our petition. We make our request. Verse 2 is a prayer, is it not? I mean, if anybody's talking to Jesus, whether they realize it or not, it's a prayer. (laughs) They're addressing deity. And so what this leper shows us in his few words here is this fundamental. 
That effective prayer, biblical prayer, theologically correct prayer happens when our total confidence in the sovereignty of God meets a complete surrender to the will of God. And when those two things intersect, you have effective prayer taking place in your life. Now, the backdrop of this story is very important, isn't it? Some of you know this already. We could go look at it. It's in Leviticus, and we won't go look at the verses, but there's the, the law there in Leviticus had particular instructions for those who had leprosy. And what it said for them to do were several things. They had to tear their clothes in a symbol of grief and mourning. They had to mess their hair up, and they had to walk around, literally it says covering their mustache, putting their hands out so that they could be heard, and they had to walk around shouting out, unclean, unclean, which basically said, keep your distance, stay away from me. They were also to live alone outside the camp, outside the city. And so they were ostracized because of this terrible disease. Lepers in the day of Jesus were the living dead. They were the living dead. Now, this leprosy would include various skin diseases. Some of these we can even relate to ourselves, some of us perhaps. It possibly included what we know of as modern-day leprosy. I think it's called Hansen's disease. But it also would have included things like ringworm, psoriasis, any kind of disease of the skin that they had no cure for, that they were afraid would be contagious. And so these lepers would be isolated from the rest of the Jewish community, and they would walk around calling out unclean. And in the minds of the people, if you had leprosy, that was a reminder, because it was symbolic to them as well, of the pollution of sin, of the corruption of sin in their very religious society. This was a devastating disease. It devastated the person socially, economically, and psychologically. In fact, the people of Israel thought that a leper was under the direct judgment of God for their sin. They were ritually unclean. They could not go into the temple and offer a sacrifice. They could not fellowship with God's people. They were also considered contagious. And so they were ostracized marginalized and despised. One commentator said, quote, these wretched untouchables were trapped in a hopeless misery. These wretched untouchables were trapped in a hopeless misery. It kind of reminds me, especially in the continent of Africa, when the AIDS epidemic and virus became known in the 80s, and how especially, really around the world, but especially in Africa, Even Christians treated people with AIDS. It was really a modern-day leprosy until they began to understand that that God would want to show them uh, compassion and mercy. And to make matters worse, if you were a leper in the days of Jesus, you had no hope of a cure because it had hardly ever happened in their entire history. In fact, it had only happened twice in biblical recorded history. Once, one Israelite... One Israelite and one Gentile. The Israelite was Miriam and Moses was the vehicle. Moses. He's been dead for centuries. The the Gentile was Naaman and Elisha was the vehicle. And that was also hundreds of years ago. And that's it. And that's it. So they would also be hopeless 
because they're looking around and there's no Moses and there's no Elisha. But lo and behold, there's a greater Moses on the scene. Lo and behold, there is one greater than Elisha. And this is an amazing story. This leper, look at verse 2, came to him. He initiated. The leper initiated it. This is audacious, to say the least. It's also illegal. He is breaking the law. He is not to, he is not to bring about any kind of interaction with a clean Jew. But all of this audaciousness and this violation of their law shows his total confidence in Jesus. He is willing to risk everything for this encounter. And he knows in his mind that all that is needed on the part of Jesus is willingness, not ability. He knows the ability is there. There is no question about the power. It's just a matter of does he want to. And Jesus responds to him with a compassionate touch. He stretches out his hand. Perhaps he laid his hand on his head. Perhaps he laid it on his shoulder. Perhaps he compassionately touched him on the arm. He says to him, I am willing, be cleansed. In other words, you are right. Ability here is not the issue. Willingness is. And I am. And now you are cleansed forever. Just one touch from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man is cured of his disease and ceremonially pure again. We say, well, was Jesus defiled by touching him? (laughs) Of course not, because the leper became clean. This was a double cure. This was a double whammy. The disease is gone and he can now be reinstated into society. He can go back to his family He can go back to his home. He he has been raised from the dead, really, as Jesus compassionately heals this man. He shows us, he pictures for us, this fundamental of our own discipleship is that prayer happens when total confidence, you can make me clean, meets complete surrender if you are willing. And that is how you and I are to pray. That is how you and I are to think about God. That is how we are to bring Him our needs and our problems and our leprosy. And our incurable issues of life. We ought to come with total confidence. God, this is not an issue of your ability. You can do all of your holy will. If you are willing. If you are willing. And so what a beautiful parallel and intersection that is, right? An intersection that is. Think about this then as you pray. Ability is never the issue. God's will is. So when you pray, pray with total confidence in God and pray with complete surrender to His will. David Turner has a great quote to sum this one up. He says, he knows, the leper knows that Jesus can heal him if he wishes to heal him. This puts the power and the providence of God side by side. There is no doubt about the power of God, but the leper does not presume upon Jesus' sovereign providence, which would be putting the Lord to the test. To presume upon his providence or sovereignty puts him to the test and that is wrong. He goes on, he says, followers of Jesus cannot dictate that God be willing to heal. But they can rest in God's love and sovereign providence, which makes no mistakes. 
The leper is not deficient in faith. He is amazingly proficient in spiritual wisdom. I love that last line. The the leper is not deficient in faith. He is amazingly spiritually proficient in wisdom. Total confidence. Complete surrender. Fundamental number two is the next uh, miracle healing story in verses 5 to 13. I want to say it this way. Great faith says everything is under Jesus' authority. And you can see how these interact and relate. Great faith says everything is under Jesus' authority. Look at verse 5 and 6. When Jesus entered Capernaum, that would be his ministry headquarters there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. A major trade route ran through there. They had a synagogue. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, begging him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Again, a little background is helpful. Centurion comes from where we get our word century, meaning a hundred. It was a Roman soldier who was over roughly a hundred other Roman soldiers. Uh, I read this week, technically it was around 80. They had 10 tenths of eight soldiers each and 10 tenths would give them to the, be uh, the centurion. But this man would have been either a Roman soldier or perhaps even a Syrian mercenary. Syria was close by, of course, and Rome would hire Syrian soldiers as mercenaries as part of their occupation of Israel. So remember, this is an occupied country. It would be like someone being in our country from another country, walking around with guns as the authority over us. That's what this man is. He's the expression of that. He's the visible representation of that. And he's also a very powerful man. Over a hundred soldiers, that's significant. He's not many layers away from Caesar himself. He is a very important man in his culture and in this setting. And that makes his begging all the more shocking. It gives us insight into the depths of the need here that he has encountered in his life. He comes to Jesus. Again, he initiates it. He's begging Jesus. He refers to him as Lord. I'm sure he speaks more than he knows. But there's a recognition here of authority. There's a recognition here of power. He says, Lord, my servant, and that can be translated boy or child even. Probably the best translation would be my, my slave, uh, my servant child. And he's lying paralyzed or crippled at home. And it's a, it's not the kind of paralysis that we would think about that wouldn't necessarily have, have pain. This is a paralysis with tremendous amount of pain and suffering. He's fearfully tormented. He is physically and emotionally and psychologically tortured. In fact, Luke tells us that he's near death. Perhaps this was an injury of some sort. We don't know why he's in this condition, but he is in, he is in dire straits. And, and here's another thing you need to know about centurions. Centurions signed up for a 20-year tour. And they could not have family for that entire 20 years. They did not live with their family. They were dispatched. And they would serve for 20 years and then they would retire with great honor and great privileges. And so it's likely that this servant child is his only family. This is all he's got. 
And we see his deep love, his concern for this child who is in great fear. Verse 8, no, verse 7, Jesus said to him, I love this, such an understatement, I will come and heal him. <laughs> Isn't that precious? Isn't that so sweet? This is a Gentile coming to Jesus with his need. I will come and heal him. No problem, Jesus says. Let's go to your house now and take care of this. Verse 8. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. This man is a Gentile. He's an educated man. He was actually a friend of the synagogue we learned from the other Gospels. And he knows that it is unlawful for Jesus to enter his home. He knows that a Jew cannot go into the home of a Gentile. That is too close a fellowship. And so that's essentially what he is saying. I recognize that I am not worthy for you to come into my home. I would make you unclean. And he also says here that he understands that Jesus is under authority. This is incredible. He says, I also am a man under authority. Jesus, you are a man under authority. Whose authority? God's. He recognizes that Jesus is under authority and therefore has great authority, just like the centurion who is under the authority of Caesar and has great authority over a hundred soldiers and his slaves. Verse 10. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Only time he marvels in the Gospel of Matthew. He only marvels two times in all of the Gospels. He marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Wow, what a commendation. What a rebuke. This man's faith, this man's understanding just surpassed everything I've encountered up to this point. Teachable moment. Jesus seizes it. I say to you, those following the crowd there, I say to you that many will come from east and west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, the Jews... The ones who are supposed to have faith. The ones who are supposed to understand who the Messiah is and what he would do. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. So on the one hand, the Gentiles are coming from east and west to a lighted feast, a celebration, a party, a banquet, reclining with the patriarchs. On the other hand, the Jews are in a place of outer darkness. No celebration, nothing but gloom. He says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is both great sorrow and great anger in that place. They are weeping and welling for their regret of having not trusted Christ. But they're also grinding their teeth in anger against God. And it's the most wretched of all places. He's describing, of course, perdition. Hell itself. Outer darkness, weeping, and the gnashing of teeth. 
You see, the Jews presumed that their relationship to Abraham was sufficient for their entrance into the kingdom. It wasn't. Your ethnicity, your race, your connection to any other believer is never going to be sufficient basis to enter the kingdom. And so Jesus here, in in what would have angered and shocked and dumbfounded his listeners, Jesus commends the great faith of this Gentile occupier and warns his unbelieving kinsmen of outer darkness. It's statements like this that set the opposition in motion, right? I mean, you can easily see how offended they would be by such a thing. They consider the Gentiles dogs. And now he has completely flipped everything on its head. Verse 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go. You know, I love this. The centurions used to tell people to do things, you know. You go. I'm your authority. You go. And it shall be done for you as you have believed. Not because you have believed. As you have believed. What you have believed, the ability to heal this servant will be done for you. And the servant was healed that very moment. That very moment. The centurion teaches us the second fundamental of discipleship. Great faith says everything is under Jesus' authority. You notice I call it great faith. I didn't call it saving faith. I think this is an area where you can grow in your faith. You can be saved. You can be a Christian and not fully understand that everything, everything, everything is under Jesus' control and authority. It is a process of growth to get there. That's why Jesus highlights and commends this man's faith. It was great faith. It was huge faith. It had massive understanding beyond his really his ability. Great faith says Jesus is sovereign. <laughs> and you see how those work together? Doesn't that build your faith? Doesn't that encourage your faith? Doesn't that sustain your faith when you say to yourself, Jesus is sovereign. He controls and orchestrates every detail of my life. Do you believe that Jesus is the authority over everything? Well, you should. You should. And, and if you do, that's a, that's an expression of great faith. We might ask it another way. Would Jesus marvel at your faith? Would Jesus marvel at your faith like he does here with the centurion? All right, number three, we move to our third fundamental in verses 14 and 15. Short and sweet, devoted service flows from spiritual healing. Service comes from salvation. Those who are saved turn around and serve. This is fundamental Number three, look at verses 14 and 15. The third of these three miracle healings in this first cycle, when Jesus came into Peter's home. So Peter lived there in Capernaum. Archaeologists have likely actually found this very spot. They believe they have found the very home, the very first century home of Peter there in Capernaum. When Jesus came into Peter's home, Jesus saw Peter's mother-in-law. So he was a fairly successful fisherman, apparently. He has a house big enough for his mother-in-law to live with them. 
And that was kind of unusual. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. Debilitated with a fever. Burning up with a fever. Of course, in that day and age, I'm sure a lot of people died from fevers on a regular basis. Who knows what the virus is that's causing this fever. That's got her dehydrated. That's got her weak. That's got her unable to even get out of the bed. She's, she's prostrate there. This is a woman of some age, obviously. She's Peter's mother-in-law. She's at least, I'm going to guess, in her 50s, which was a, a good age in that day and age. And so so there she is in bed, and Jesus comes into the home, and, and there's no indication of her faith. There's no indication that she says a word. There's no indication that any of the disciples say a word. All you get is verse 15. Jesus had already seen her in verse 14. He touched her hand. I wish I could go to Dr. Javier with a fever and he could just go, touch, okay, next, <laughs> touch, touch, touched her hand, fever left her, she got up and served him. She got up and waited on him. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a really bad fever that put you in a bed like that. But when that fever breaks, do you get up and rush to the crock and exercise? <laughs> do you get up and start cleaning your house? And do you get up and, and, and call people over for a dinner party? No, there's like a couple of days of recovery, isn't there? And you get rehydrated, you got to get your strength back, you got to get, get with it again. Well, she bypassed all of that because Jesus touched her hand. <laughs> And was, she was instantly restored to full health. This is very interesting because touching someone with a fever was forbidden in rabbinic tradition. And the Pharisees frowned upon a man touching a woman in public. Any woman, but especially a woman that's not your wife. Jesus could care less about rabbinic traditions and the frowns of Pharisees, right? Could care less. This is also the only time in Matthew that someone is healed without asking for it. Wow. There's got to be an underlying message here for Peter. Peter, follow me. I will take care of you and yours. Mm. But Matthew is doing something deeper than the healing here. And it's our third fundamental of discipleship. Matthew is seeking to strike a chord in every Christian reader, the first century Jews to this very day. When you read verse 15, it should strike a chord in your redeemed heart. He came to you, he touched you, the fever left you, and you got up and started serving him. Did you notice it didn't say she served them? He's with his disciples. There's a house full of people. Matthew wants us to see this is a picture of discipleship. She not only became healed, she became a follower. Matthew is showing us that salvation leads to service, that that devoted service, waiting on him, flows from spiritual healing. 
Jesus removes our debilitating sickness of sin, right? And then he energizes us to serve him. What a beautiful picture. So from the outcast leper, from the outcast leper, we learned that prayer happens when total confidence meets complete surrender. And from the Roman Gentile centurion, we learn that great, great faith says everything is under Jesus' authority. And now from a woman, we learn that devoted service flows from spiritual healing. And Matthew has yet an even deeper message. The leper, the Gentile, and the woman. The outcasts of Jewish society. The marginalized Those who didn't have the privilege and the power. And Matthew is showing us once again that God's grace is for all people. Of all stations of life, of all genders, of all nationalities. This is a hint once again of where we're going, Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations. Here are fundamentals of discipleship from these three needy, broken people. So what is verses 16 and 17 doing here? Look at these two verses and we will begin to wrap up with them. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon possessed and he cast out the spirits, evil spirits, of course, with a word. And he healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet. This is Isaiah 53, 4. And it's Matthew's own translation from the Hebrew. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. This is like a P.S. We've had three stories of healings with three individual people. This is not a story of healing. This is a summary of healing. Matthew loves these. He's very structured. This is one of those markers along the way in his gospel to give us a summary of the ministry of Jesus and to remind us that what he does is in, is in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Matthew loves to refer back to a prophecy, right? And especially Isaiah. And here is another example of that. There are many throughout this gospel. We could actually call this a bonus fundamental of discipleship. And I'll state it for you at the end. Understand that this is not a new story of healing, but a summary. And it's interesting, he he casts out these demons with a word. What are we looking at? We're looking at authoritative deeds, right? How did the Jewish exorcists try to cast out demons? It was a long, elaborate process. They had incantations. They had oaths that they had to repeat. It was kind of an abracadabra sort of thing. They might call on angels to come and and cast out this demon. It would go on and on and on. Jesus casts out the demons with a word. So he's not like the Jewish exorcists. He has an authority that surpasses theirs. And it says he healed all who were ill. And so we get the picture here that perhaps some of these illnesses and these diseases were because of the demon possession. Perhaps when the demons came, they also brought an affliction of of the body. 
And all of these poor, suffering, miserable, wretched souls inhabited by demons themselves are brought to Jesus with their sicknesses and with their diseases. And he just simply sends the demons running and heals all who are ill. And he does this to fulfill God's word. Verse 17 here, we need to talk about for a moment, because this is a passage in a verse that is frequently misused by charismatics and by those who purport to have healing ministries. They try to use this passage as their theology that God's will is always to heal. And the reason people aren't healed is because they don't have enough faith. And they go to this verse and they go to Isaiah 53 to try to support that and prove that. And that is a a dangerous error and an untruth. It is not always God's will to heal us. In fact, as as I've hopefully you've seen, faith is not even the emphasis here in this passage. The authority of Jesus is the emphasis. And we have Peter's mother-in-law who doesn't even express faith to show us that. What is going on then is this. In both Isaiah 53, hello, (laughs) Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, that great prophecy about the cross of Jesus Christ, that's where this came from. In that verse and here, in progressive revelation, right, we're still before the cross. Isaiah 700 years before the cross. Here when... When uh, Jesus is doing these miracles, the cross hasn't happened yet. What is happening then is this. The prophecy is looking forward to the cross when Jesus would deal with the root cause of all disease and illness. At the cross, Jesus will not deal with the fruit. He will sever the root. He will go to the heart of the matter. Why are there diseases? Because there is what? Sin. Sin is the cause of disease ultimately. It is the fall that brings these on. And Jesus at the cross will deal with the root cause of every negative physical consequence this world has ever seen. And so at the cross, the work is done to eventually carry away, eventually take away all infirmities and all diseases for all time. His healings then, when He was here, were hints of the kingdom age to come. They were foreshadowing of what the millennial kingdom reign would look like and what the eternal kingdom will look like. These healings are tokens. They are tokens of the ultimate result of the atonement. So we can't go to the atonement and say, by His stripes we are healed physically and claim that right now because that's not always God's will. But we can go to the atonement and we can say that this accomplished the work that will eventually result in my complete healing. It will eventually result in a resurrection glorified body that can't get sick and can't die. Because Jesus will deal with something deeper than cancer. He will deal with sin. He will deal with the wrath of God against our sin. And He will turn God's anger into favor for us. A favor that eventually raises us from the dead and glorifies us to be in His presence. You see, the fundamental error with charismatic theology is this. They have a kingdom now viewpoint. That is the fundamental error. 
of charismatic theology. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. We can expect kingdom conditions like signs and wonders and healings of all kinds. Well, newsflash, we are not in the kingdom. The kingdom can only come when Jesus comes. We do not bring it in, pray it in. It's not about anything we do. It's what He does. It's what God the Father initiates when He sends His Son to get His bride. It takes nothing less than the second coming of Jesus Christ for the kingdom to come. And so a kingdom now theology is wrong and it leads to grave errors. It leads away from the Calvary road, the narrow road that few find. Much of the kingdom now theology appeals to the flesh. It's people telling people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. Like total confidence should meet complete surrender. It will take the second coming of Jesus then to bring in the kingdom, to see the full effects of the cross on the curse. And before then, beloved, before then, we've got to die of something. Sounds cold, sounds harsh, it's the truth. We have to die of something. Before then, before Jesus comes, even legitimate healings, and I believe that there can be, I believe that there are, legitimate healings by the hand of God, they're all temporary Even if God miraculously intervenes in answer to the prayer of His people and heals someone of cancer in their 40s, it is a temporary healing. They're still going to die. We have to die of something. Lazarus died again. So whether we are seeking our own healing or we're seeking the healing of someone we love... Take these wise words to heart. This is from Grant Osborne in his commentary on Matthew. Listen to these words. He says, God is sovereign, not our faith. When we are not healed physically, God is doing what is best for us. And his very refusal to heal us physically becomes the means of healing us spiritually. So that God's healing presence is always involved. I'm going to read that again. You've got to get this, church. When we are not healed physically, God is doing what is best for us. And his this is key. His very refusal to heal us physically becomes the means of healing us spiritually. So that God's healing presence is always involved. So what's the fourth, the bonus fundamental of discipleship? I'll say it this way. The disciples' hope is ultimate healing. The disciples' hope is ultimate healing. Let's pray. Lord, we need to keep our eye on the ball. We need to practice the fundamentals of the faith and of what it means to follow you. And so I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would uh, ingrain these truths, these principles into our lives, into our prayer, into our faith, into our hope, and into our service. 
And that these realities would mark us as disciples of Christ. Father, I pray today for the person who's here who has no hope, who has no faith, who doesn't serve you. The person who's here who has no effective prayer life, maybe a rote prayer life, maybe some memorized prayers as a child, but they don't really have a relationship with you, Lord. We would come to you and we bow down and we beg you if you are willing, you can make them clean. And we say, if you are willing, you can save them. You can grant them repentance and faith and you can change them forever. We ask that you would unleash your gentle power in this place, your tender firmness, and you would call a sinner home today. That a leper would be cleansed and a paralyzed person would be raised and a fever would be driven away by the power of your word and gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. And everyone said, Amen.